Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? That is the sound of sizzling chicken. But not just any kind of chicken. Lab-grown chicken. Chicken that was fermented. It started out almost like a soup. And over two weeks in a stainless steel vat turned into chicken flesh, which was then cooked up for me for my little taste test. Welcome to Danny in the Valley, where this week we are talking about the future of meat with Uma Valetti. He's the co-founder of Upside Foods. The company that really kicked off this whole cultured meat movement when they grew a meatball in a lab way back in 2016. Now, there's nearly 100 companies around the world that are working on growing everything from tuna to duck to beef to lamb to foie gras, whatever it may be. Any flesh of any animal or fish or poultry, whatever it may be, is being worked on right now, grown in labs or pilot facilities you know, all with the same idea of replacing the alternative, which of course are vast feedlots feeding slaughterhouses or huge fish farming operations um, where they have to pump, you know, pump in antibiotics and all kinds of stuff to keep, you know, all of these animals in close quarters from getting sick. So the lure is very clear. Industrial agriculture as we know it accounts today for about a quarter of our greenhouse gas emissions. And that is before we even talk about the animal welfare issues, the danger of zoonotic diseases, which is when viruses or diseases cross over from animals to humans, you know, like COVID-19. That's more common than you think. Now, cultivated meat, it has the potential to completely upend this entire system, this multi-trillion dollar global system. It is a very, very big idea and it's a very new industry. Uh, much of it is just coming out now out of this kind of science experiment phase. So the core science has been cracked, more or less. And now it's a question of can you turn this into a business that, you know, for people like Uma, you know, they're arguing this is going to change the world. But this is where we are right now. Estimates are that to produce a kilo, just a kilo, of lab-grown meat costs anywhere from 100 times to 10,000 times as much as the old school way. Um, so we're at this interesting point where, 
you know, is this going to work? We're going to find out over these next few years. And it is in that context in which I went to go try me some test tube chicken at Upside's brand new facility. They just opened it up in Emeryville, just across the water from San Francisco. So we talk about, obviously, the chicken, uh, which which you're about to hear, I try. And also, just more broadly, about the industry, the potential, the challenges, and kind of where things go from here and, and, you know, how real this industry is or not and what it might all mean for for the rest of us. So I will hand you over now to the, our little taste test. I also got a little tour of the factory, which, like I said, looks kind of like a brewery. It's super weird. And then we'll go straight into my interview. Uh, we sat down in Uma's office after to talk about kind of how he ended up getting into this and why. So here we go me checking out some cultivated, cultured chicken. And when he cuts, you should notice how the, the knife is going through, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's not soft, it's not mushy, it's actually, yeah. like, it offers resistance that you mm-hmm. cut. So now he's producing a compost bite, uh, and also a bite by itself. So that's two, two tasting spoons. Mm-hmm. One, I think you should try to pick up on, with your hand, bare hands, pull it apart. Okay. And the other one is just like, this is a composed bite in a restaurant you're getting. Right, 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 right. So, start with the raw, I mean, not the raw, but the one without anything on it. That's just checking. Feel right. free to rip it apart. Feel free to give it some stress test. <laughs> That's actual chicken. <laughs> I know that's not a shocking bell. No, no, it's not shocking. <laughs> but it's a first experience, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You've done the part that is uh, probably the most exclusive part of this whole development yeah, yeah. process. There, yeah, yeah. we're starting off with the first uh, cells and trying to put them together into one that you know is real meat. And the experience that you've had, maybe only a thousand plus people have had on the wall so far. Wow. And the idea is. Let's get a product that is really desirable, yeah. and that people say immediately, "This is this is this is real meat," and uh, get it out as quickly as possible to show the promise and potential. Continue to improve from there. Continue to add flavors. Continue to add yeah. textures. Add different animals. Thank you for having me, and thank you for letting me try the the meat. Absolutely welcome. We've been talking about this for more than a year. Uh, yeah, I know for a long time. <laughs> So we just did this tour. I just did the tasting. We just had a tour. And we've covered this subject in many different pods um, over the last couple of years. But if you could just briefly describe the kind of the journey that that piece of chicken I just ate, how does that start? You said it took two weeks to grow into meat. But just like a brief overview of how this works, and then we can get into the kind of how you ended up doing this in the first place and kind of where you guys are going now. So at Upside Foods, uh, we've been growing beef, chicken, and duck for the last five plus years. What you ate today was a chicken breast meat. And uh, it started off with getting a few cells from a chicken Mm -hmm. about three and a half years ago, Mm -hmm. where we got a small biopsy Mm -hmm. from an adult animal and used those cells to continue to grow them outside the animal, and we've developed a bank of these cells. So the chicken I just ate originated three and a half years ago from this biopsy? Yes. Okay. 
and we haven't had to go back to the chicken. Now, there's right. also other chickens yeah. or meat that we made that's originated from eggs. We'll take a few cells from eggs. Mm. And, you know, the egg never hatched into a chicken, but there's a few cells you take and you identify the type of cells mm. that can continue to proliferate and grow just like they're growing inside an animal. Yep. And what our team does is to pick the cells that have the taste and the texture that we're very used to and like. Yeah. So for chicken breast, you want to have milder flavored cells yeah. that have these tender muscle fibers because the thigh muscles are thicker muscle fibers yeah. and have a more intense flavor. Yeah. So what you ate today is the milder flavored chicken breast yeah. meat that we've grown from this chicken that we've taken some cells from about three and a half years ago. Right. And we've been using the same starter cells, just like, you know, when you're making sourdough bread, you have a starter. Yep. Yep. We go back to the same cells, we grow them up, and there is a process where there's a continuous seed train, mm. which means these cells are continuously growing. Yep. And we're ready to cultivate and produce in a larger quantity. We take it from the seed train and we put it into one of the cultivators. Which look like these kind of tanks you'd see, like we were saying before, like a brewery. Right. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And we put them in there along with feed because these cells need to eat. And the feed is essentially a mix of water with very high quality nutrients that are needed for survival of a cell. That includes a mixture of amino acids, which the cells eat and mm. assemble into proteins. Yeah. It includes a mixture of fats that the cells then use and say, I'm going to use that to add fat into yep. my body and also use that for functioning of the cell. Then there's also vitamins and there's minerals and there's oxygen. That's the mixture in which the cells are growing because that's essentially what's happening inside an animal. As they start growing, they start doubling every 18 to 24 hours. Yep. So you start off with, let's say, 10 million cells, then you can end up with 10 billion cells over yep. a certain number of doubling periods. So ultimately, it takes about two weeks for us to be able to get enough doublings yep. to be able to say, now we can harvest the meat mm -hmm. and go ahead and cook it just like you would cook any meat. So it starts effectively as like a, a soup. It starts as cells, yep. which are solid. Yep. But every cell, you know, including an animal cell, has 80% of it is water. Right. So these cells have 80% water and 20% is solids, which is proteins and you know, yeah. other things that make the solid. So like chunky soup. It starts with that. <laughs> exactly. It's the primordial soup of life. Yes, 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 yes. I see. And I from see. that primordial soup, let's say, these cells are continuing to double. And as you get them to double and double and double, they're also touching each other mm -hmm. and starting to form the continuous connections between right. cell to cell, that's where the fiber starts coming from. When you ate uh, the chicken earlier, mm. there were fibers. Yep. There's fibers yeah, yeah. formed because the cells are attached to each other and form the connections, and they form something called extracellular matrix, which yeah. is that little connective tissue that is required for the bounce. Right, 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 right. So that's what happens as they grow and start touching each other. So at the end of two weeks, we feel like it's good to be able to harvest, to give that real tender, juicy, uh, type right. of meat uh, experience. Um, why are you doing this? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the reason we are doing this is we, we truly believe that there is a much better way of bringing meat to the table mm. and using that as a force for good. We are, as humans, we've always loved eating meat. It's been the center of plate for every culture and is the center of plate for every culture. Mm -hmm. And the demand for it is continuing to increase. But the way we produce is getting increasingly challenging to feed that growing population. 
And that's really where the problem statement is that we love what we eat, but the way we produce it is not going to be able to sustain how much we need. Right. That's where cultivated meat can have a really big role to play because we could grow the meat in a much shorter duration. Like I talked about, two weeks versus growing a chicken for three months or a pig for a year or a cow for two years. Yeah. When we shorten the production process by that much, it also means we use a lot less resources. Mm. So when you start talking about using tenfold less resources, that just changes the equation of how In terms much more of chicken. we can produce. Chicken, beef, duck, any of Roughly others. it's tenfold less of resources as a kind That's of That's the target we're going after. Right. And not only us, but other companies yeah, in this yeah. space see the first principal advantage of this technology mm. is really you're only growing what you eat. Mm. You're not growing it longer than needed. Yeah. You're also not... You know, as an animal has to run around and burn a lot of calories to run around, have, you know, have babies, heal broken bones, yeah. skin, bone, and feathers, which we don't eat. Yeah. We're literally taking all of that and saying, we're only going to use the calories to grow meat. Yeah. This makes it a lot more efficient. So that applies for any meat, poultry, seafood that we eat. Right. And I think that's the big advantage for this uh, field. Right. And you trained as a cardiologist? Uh, yes. I trained as a cardiologist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. In Rochester, Minnesota. Yeah. <laughs> so what was the moment for you where you're like, I'm going to stop being a cardiologist and do this, I mean, crazy idea, especially back then? Yeah. There were, there were three defining moments in my life and why this path became my mm. calling. The first one was when I was 12 years old. When I, was, you know, I grew up in a meat-eating family. Loved the taste of meat, but I didn't know where it came from. Mm. I went to a friend's birthday party, mm-hmm. and in the front of the house, we were having music, fun, dance, food. Yeah. And then I walked to the back of the house, and that's where I saw a very large-scale slaughter, mm. of, because it was a very big party. Well, did they have like a like a they were slaughtering a pig or a cow or a sheep or chickens? Chickens. Yes. Wow. To feed people in the front. Was this in Rochester? No, this is, I grew up in India. Oh, okay. Okay. In India. All right. Okay, I understand. I was 12 years old. I see. I went to a birthday party, and then I see birthday, death day happening in the same moment. Yep. Intense amount of uh, happiness, Mm -hmm. celebration in the front, and an equal amount of suffering in the back. The kind of classic, don't, you don't want to know how the sausage is made. Yes. And I think that just stuck with me in my head as an image, but I kept eating meat. I loved the taste of eating meat. And the second moment is in medical school. Mm-hmm. I was running the cafeteria for our medical school as a medical student. Were you doing that to help pay for college, basically? Or was that just because... Well, our, the medical students ran their own cafeteria just to lower costs. Oh, I see. And I had to run it for six months. I see. Uh, with a couple of my friends. And we went to then procure a lot of meat. And then we saw, at that point, large-scale slaughter of chicken mm. and pigs and... That became a much more important moment in my life. And I said, look, I love the taste of meat, but it's really hard to get behind uh, that amount of slaughter. Mm. And so I stopped eating meat, but I kept loving the taste of meat. Then I go to Mayo Clinic to do my cardiology. That's when the next defining moment happened, where we were using stem cells to regrow heart muscle. And I started learning about it, reading about it, and talking to every expert in the world about it, because it was fascinating. Because, you know, I was doing procedures. I was an interventional cardiologist. When patients came with heart attacks, I was injecting, you know, stem cells into their hearts to regrow heart muscle. Wow. So that's really where the idea came from later on in my practice in in the Twin Cities, Mm. where when I was injecting these cells, I'm like, you know, this is fascinating. This is great for 
the innovation happening in human health, but what if we can actually grow meat from animal cells? And once that got into my head, I couldn't get it out. Yep. And that, I'd say probably that was the biggest aha moment of like, what if we just use that and starting to explore taking cells from cows, chickens, pigs, fish, if it grows into what we think is going to be able to take in mm. the same meat experience to me, mm. I would get behind that. So it yeah. became as a personal quest for me to say, I want to eat meat. Can I make it like this? Started a basic science lab at the University of Minnesota and very quickly realized that this should not be in the academic sector. Mm. It should be in the real world. Right. So I wrote to one venture capitalist who fell in love with the idea and asked their team to move to the Bay Area. But I hadn't quit cardiology yet at that little point because I was the head of the cardiovascular imaging program. Right. And I was, you know, had a large practice. I was working with the American Heart Association and the College wow. of Cardiology, at two medical device companies. I still hadn't made the choice to quit cardiology, but that moment came in San Francisco in the basement of uh, IndieBio, which is the initial... Uh, oh, yes, Arvind. ...funded us, Arvind and Ron and Ryan. Yeah. When we grew the first few grams of beef... And I put it in my mouth and tasted it. It just blew my mind. Mm. Like, I've never tasted anything mm. that tasted like, like this in yeah, a meat yeah. alternative. And I'm like, this is it. We've got this. That was the most important defining moment that made me say, look, if we can keep making this with that meat flavor and mm. how it tasted and how long it took to make it, there is an enormous opportunity here. Mm. You know, so that was okay. really important for me to say, okay, I'm going to quit cardiology and do this full time. So I quit cardiology. And of course, I couldn't have done this without the support of my wife and kids yeah, who yeah. clearly said, Dad, you should do this. Why are you not doing it? And that became the calling. And then I had a team that was ready to go. You know, our team, the early team, and the team we have now of about nearly 150 people, every single day, they feel intensely motivated that we're going to put this paradigm changing way of bringing food to the table. And we want this team to become the force for good yeah we've pioneered nearly every major breakthrough in this field mm. we were the first company in this space and yeah there were enormous amount of skeptics back for sure. then that, there still are and there still are uh, quite a large number of skeptics but less than before the yeah. barriers are less than before it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We've kicked off this movement in a way that is already in five years spread across the world very rapidly. Mm. There's nearly 100 companies in the space in every meat-producing yeah. country or consuming country. There's lots of undergrad and PhD mm. training programs that are started in all the major food and ag universities. Nearly every major regulatory agency in the world 
is looking to see how can we get these products on safely onto the market. Yeah. And investors from every sector, not just food sector, have been putting enormous amounts of investments into this because they see not only the enormous financial opportunity for them to do well, yeah, yeah. but they actually see the impact that it can have on humanity, on climate change, on animal welfare, on the opportunity to make meat better. So we have, in our own company at Upside, we have financial investors that did the first investments into Tesla and SpaceX. Mm-hmm. We have uh, uh, investors that are the you know the top five percent of the financial investors in the world. That includes SoftBank and Norwest yeah. and Temasek. We have impact investors that include Branson and Gates and and Kimball Musk and John Mackey and Susie Welsh and Jack Welsh. And then we have incumbents like Cargill and mm-hmm. Tyson, the top meat producers in the world. Uh, also say we can get behind this. And recently were joined by uh, Whole Foods as a, also an investor. So oh, wow. I think all of these, what it signals to us is there is a lot of interest across a diverse yeah. group of people. And our team reflects that. Our team has people from 20 countries. We've yeah. got more than 50% of women. And you know it's who we think is going to be eating this product. And it's a snapshot of the world also as a part of our team. So it wakes us up every day. Uh, yeah, we've yeah. come pretty far in the last five years, but the real shift is happening now, which is we're moving from a research and development effort into a commercialization effort, yeah. which means we want to be able to launch these products into the world, get the consumers to start understanding what real meat will taste like yeah. in the future, and start demystifying it from there. Our first products will be really good, and I think the subsequent products are going to continue to make them better. Yeah. So it's a journey that will be... You know, you know, decades long, but one step in front of the other. Our immediate goal is to get a product out onto the market, and it's going to be produced in this production facility that you're sitting in. Yeah. And it's, this is the first of its kind in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's I want to talk about that because scale is a real interesting challenge for, as you say, for the 100 companies or so that are working on this in one form or another. But I have two other questions before that. One, so before the tasting, I had to sign a document. Oh, okay. I didn't know what yeah. to find, but is it it was like NDA It was or? like a tasting document. It was okay. like, basically, if anything happens to you, we're not responsible. Yeah. And I don't know if that's just a legalese thing, but it just struck me as odd because, like, as you say, this is, this is not a meat alternative. It is meat. Yes. It just seems strange to me that it was like, well, why, what's, you know, and then maybe it's just because it's experimental and we still don't know if, like, I don't know. It might affect somebody different or a different way or whatever, but it was, uh, I don't know if there's any, in terms of the science that we don't know yet about meat made in this way that we're still kind of yet to figure out and that, you know, or if it was just lawyers being lawyers. (laughs) I think what you're seeing is the following. If you go to any food production facility that has a research and development component Mm. to it, when you go in to do taste testing on a product that has not been released into the market yet, in food, it's a standard practice for you to Mm. say, I'm going to sign this document that says that I am tasting a product that's not on market, is not legally available for me to buy, and understand and accept that that's what I'm signing up for. So that's the origin of this document. When I think about the safety, To be very clear, I've eaten this multiple times. My kids have eaten it multiple Mm. times. My wife has. And uh, what I'm thinking here is we are producing it in a way that is significantly simpler Mm. and less complex than how meat comes to the table. My deep 
personal belief and the belief of why we started the company is we'll make meat production much more safer. Yeah. But we do want to go through the appropriate regulatory authorities yeah, yeah. to do that. And so we, we've been working with FDA and the USDA to establish a paradigm of how food uh, cultivated meat comes yeah. to the market. And there's a very well-established paradigm they've published in March 2019 that we're following. So the big difference between traditional meat production and here is the absence of a slaughterhouse. Yep. So this is a large facility, but it would be 10 times larger if we had a slaughterhouse here. To produce the same amount of chicken or whatever. Yeah, ultimately when we have the production facility yeah. operating to only produce, yeah. you still need a very large slaughterhouse. Yeah. When we think about the risk of contamination, whether it's coming from the skin or the guts of an animal, that's mm. really where the yeah. big risk is. We're taking that out and minimizing it. Still food, we have to handle it carefully. So there's a lot of precautions here to minimize contamination. We think we'll lower it significantly. We won't make it zero, but we'll lower it significantly. So we think it's going to be a much safer product. Mm. And the other part is, if there is any contamination, we can detect it before it actually gets out on the market, as opposed right. to you know, tens of millions of pounds being recalled. So there's a lot of advantages built in. Mm. But not to say it's 100% fail-proof or, you know, that's where we have to continuously be active in risk mitigating and yeah. build an industry that is very responsible and also very transparent. Yeah. So two questions. One is about fetal bovine serum, mm -hmm. because that's, this has been a lot of the skeptics have zeroed in on this, which yes. is, and you can explain it better than I, but I, it's, it's this kind of growth factor that was, I believe, especially in the earlier years, really vital in growing cultured meat and the way it was extracted was pretty horrendous from like the fetus of mm -hmm. a slaughtered cow. Do you guys use that? What is the state of kind of the technology? Cause you guys, as you say, have been working on this for five, six years. Uh, when you talk about kind of scaling this, what is the situation now with fetal bovine serum? Yeah. So really great question. There is no way this industry is going to scale depending on fetal bovine serum. Yeah. There's just no way. Yeah. You can make maybe enough to feed 100 people. Yeah. So we've moved away from fetal bovine serum completely. We don't use fetal bovine serum for our production um, uh, of meat. The part that is important to recognize for people who are learning about this field mm -hmm. is the entire history of growing cells outside of an animal yeah. has been done in fetal bovine serum. So we understand that for the purposes of medicine, yeah. vaccine production, all the medical innovations that have happened, They've used first cells to grow and understand the biology. Right. As the cultivated meat field evolved, the scientists in this field, including our scientists, had to really understand why do these cells mm. grow so well in fetal bovine serum. Right. And in the absence of that understanding, you're going into something really blind and you're shooting in the dark. But knowing that, understanding why fetal bovine serum supported the cell's growth was such an important unlock for mm. us. Once we understood that, we started breaking that down and saying, okay, what the cells are looking for is a combination of these ingredients I see. that are in the fetal bovine serum, yeah. but we don't need to come from a calf or a pregnant uh, dairy yeah. cow from where it's uh, usually taken. Once that understanding has happened, this field is moving much faster, and we have an entire group that only develops media that's starting to define, what we call is a very defined media. It'll have a number of ingredients mm. that includes the well-recognized well things in food like amino acids and fatty acids and sugars and vitamins and minerals and growth factors and oxygen. This is the mix that is important. It's the equivalent of blood, yeah. right? And that's already happened. So we're already moving away completely. 
they're still in R&D where you have to figure out some important unlocks. For instance, yeah. you're trying to figure out a new type of meat or a new yeah. flavor. You want to understand why is that flavor coming from serum. Yeah. There's on the R&D, there will always be for a while. Yeah. But when we start going to customers, there is no yeah. fetal bovine serum in there. Right. And I know you're short on time, so I have two other questions and I'll let you go. One is around scale. We had on the podcast a couple months ago, David Friedberg from the production board. Oh, yes. And he was talking about this kind of sector as really interesting, but also with a huge scaling problem. And you just showed me this um, this facility with all these you know big steel vats, like a brewery. He's like, you're going to need like tens or hundreds of thousands of those. And there's just not the... Nobody's building those, enough of those, just yeah. that alone. But if you could talk about kind of where we are and the scaling challenge, and that leads to the final question, which is like, if we go 10 years out, yeah, you know, crystal ball, what is the world you see in terms of like, you go walk down the supermarket aisle, what are you looking at in the meat section? Yeah. I mean, if I'm looking at this 10 years from now, I'm saying we're going to have cultivated meat from upside available in majority of the top retail stores mm-hmm. and also food service chains in the United States. Yeah, you Our guys f- along with not 100, not all of them are going to survive, but a dozen, two dozen, whatever it may be, there's yeah. going to be a whole plethora. There'll be a plethora of cultivated meat companies that'll be putting their species or specific cut out there in both retail and restaurants. Yeah. It still will be a small percent of the total meat market size because of the cultivation capacity you're talking about. The scale is such an incredible unlock here. Mm. And in order to build those facilities, just like 99% of the cars on the road right now in the world are combustion engine cars. Yep. But the hope is electrification of that. And that's still only 1%. That is 20 years out since you know, electric cars started coming out. But 10 years from now, I think there'll be low single-digit percent of meat mm. on the aisles that'll be cultivated meat. But it's going to start offering the hope for the next 10 years and 20 years after that. That's going to get you know double-digit percents. And by 2050, not our estimates, but lots of other people have done estimates on that with taking into account how much steel needs to be put in the ground. About 30 to 40% of the meat that we're consuming as a humanity will come from cultivated meat. Mm. I think that's an absolute scale-up challenge that this industry has to solve. The only alternative I see is the following, that we start rationing meat for people across the world. And that's simply a function of the number of people and the growing living standards for a lot of them. Yeah, it's number of people going from 7 billion to 10 billion have more spending capacity, wanting to buy more meat. But the real bottleneck comes in, we already grow 70 billion animals right now. We need to double that to 150 billion animals to be able to meet that demand. Mm. And there's just not enough space, nor water, nor can we take the greenhouse gas emissions coming from 150 billion animals. But if we stabilize them at where we are now, but the delta of the demand is taken over by cultivated meat and a combination of meat alternatives coming from plants, then I think we stabilize it. After that, then people can start saying, look, do we really want to have intense animal production facilities like the CAFOs? Or do we want to have regenerative animal production? I think regenerative will probably be the way to go for Mm. a small percent of market. The majority of the market will be a combination of cultivated meat and uh, meat alternatives. Right. Well, I look forward to coming back here and trying the the, the chicken thigh. And beef. And And pork. And and fish. (laughs) They're all going to be launched from here. All of them. 
well, because this is a production facility yeah, and yeah, yeah. an innovation center, yeah. right? This is not a commercial scale thing where yeah. we're saying all meat's going to be produced here. The big launches that show the promise to the world will happen from here. Well, and this is what I was just thinking as we were walking through, and I know you're short on time, but this is like uh, I can see in like five years or even next year or this year, um, like field trips coming through because you yes. need people, you need buy-in. You need people to buy in. You need young people to buy in to kind of create the market to then, you know, generate the demand. But I can see this being part of that. And then kids come home and be like, hey, why are we eating a cow? 100%. I think the kids will come by and be super excited. And we did our first field trip yesterday. Oh, really? Incredible amount of excitement with kids running around from five-year-olds to teenagers. Right, right, right. Running around, doing the loop that you just did. And I think more and more of that has to be done. And Upside has been championing this level of Mm. communication, transparency at the earliest stages. Like I said, the first 30 grams of beef we made, we cooked it in front of the world. The first pound of chicken and duck we made in the world, we cooked in front of the world. Right. The first production facility that we're launching we're asking people to come by and visit. I mean, all of these are essential for people to mm. ask the right questions. Look, we are not going to get all of it right immediately. But the journey has started. It's inevitable that we're going to have this industry continue to scale. And there's a lot of people that have joined this ecosystem. Yeah. And we're just really proud to be a part of it. Yeah. Well, look, I thank you for your time. And I look forward to uh, future taste tests. All right. Thanks, Danny. <laughs> thank you. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Uma for a really fascinating afternoon looking at, you know, the future of food and the food systems as we know it. What do you guys think? Would you eat it? I'll tell you, like I said, it was chicken. I don't really like chicken breast. So for me, it's a bit bland. It's actually the most bland part of the bird. But they replicated it. I mean, it is chicken flesh. And it tasted like chicken flesh. So... That's impressive. I guess, you know, obviously the question is, can they scale it up? Can they make this a thing that is producible at levels and at prices that actually make sense for people? Or will this just be kind of a guilt-free protein for the 1%? We shall see. Anyhow, thank you, you guys, for tuning in, as always. I'll be writing about this whole um, subject in this week's Sunday Times, so do check that out at thetimes.co.uk. You can also find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson, or you can email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started
The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.